A moment's prayer before the sermon. Let us pray. May the words that I speak now, the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As a community, I guess that we are being rocked at the moment with two deaths of very significant people here. And whenever you get deaths, like however old people were, however ill they were, the question always arises of why. There's always that sense of darkness the darkness of grief, but also the darkness of not knowing, of not knowing what lies beyond this life. We can have hope, but we don't know. And that can mean it's a disturbing time for all of us. And when you look around at the things happening in the world, the bomb blasts in Ankara, for example, mindless inhumanity, Pointless violence. And if somebody thought there was a point to it, we cannot understand how anybody could think like that, could actually see that there might be some purpose in killing and maiming and damaging people. And it's quite hard sometimes to look at the news and to have any clue what's going on. It's sometimes hard to look at the news and to have any sense that there's a loving God involved in this world. And sometimes our own lives become incredibly difficult and things just seem to keep happening to us Sometimes we go through life and we're on the front foot and we are able to mould events around us. We're able to influence things. And there's other times when life just seems to happen to us and it's one blow after another that we can do little about or nothing about. And at that point, if we're honest... We look for a God who will be like a fairy godmother and come and wave a magic wand and take away the hurt and take away the difficulty and simply make all things right for us. The first reading we heard this morning was from the book of Job which is possibly one of the darkest books in the Bible, and so not bedtime reading for many people. Because it explores these human reactions that we have as we go through difficulties in life and we see the problems of the world round about us. Job goes through one blow after another. And he finds himself wanting to have an argument with God. 
Or rather, he wants to put his case to God. Because Job believes he doesn't deserve any of these things that have been happening to him. And of course, in the theology of his time, if you were right with God, then God would do right by you, and you would be prosperous, and you wouldn't be ill, and everything in life would be fine. And Job has become ill, and he's losing his prosperity, and everything in his relationships of life is no longer fine, and yet he does not believe that he is wrong with God. So what's God up to? If only I could put my case to God, I would either be able to discover where I've deluded myself, that I must have done something wrong, and God will reveal that to me, or God will explain why, despite me being right with God, all these things are happening to me. Go on, be honest. There must have been a moment in your life, perhaps there have been many, when you've had that sort of thought and feeling. Not surprisingly, these are not the sort of things we often talk about to each other in church. And Job comes to that awful place where he wants to have this conversation with God. He wants to put his case to God. But now he discovers that God's gone missing. That God, he feels that God has gone away. He feels that he can't find God that he can't have a conversation with God like he usually has. That God is no longer a light in his life. God has vanished somewhere into the darkness. And yet you will notice in the reading you heard that throughout the book of Job, Job doesn't give up on God. Job believes that God must still be there somewhere. And if he's lost his sense of God, that doesn't mean to say that God is not there. Simply because he can't sense God being with him doesn't mean to say that God is not there for him. The last verse you heard this morning has Job saying God is so much bigger, so mysterious. And if necessary, I'll go into the darkness in order to have the conversation with God. I'll face the darkness. If God is in the darkness, I will go into the darkness. And you hear Job saying to himself, what am I scared of? God or the darkness. But if God's in the darkness at the moment, 
I must face and go into the darkness. In the psalm that we said together, Psalm 22, you hear the psalmist going through similar patterns of thought. The world's against me. People are mocking me. Everything's become hard. People are seeking to kill me. And I feel abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you there comfortably like you've been there for me in the past? It feels like you've abandoned me. You could see why new, the writers of the New Testament, when they were trying to make sense of what happened to Jesus as he was crucified, why they found Psalm 22 as something that helped them get a handle on what was happening to Jesus. And they knew that Jesus had quoted this psalm. As an aside, it always strikes me as very odd the way we Christians sometimes just can't face some things which are too difficult. And there's various commentaries on the New Testament. It says, when Jesus quoted the start of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he meant was the last verse of Psalm 22, which of course is an act of praise to God. It's as if Jesus didn't mean what he said. I assume Jesus was intelligent enough to quote the bit of the psalm which actually matched how he felt at the time. And Psalm 22 goes on a journey from being realistic about our sense sometimes that we can no longer feel God's comforting presence. And it goes on a journey where it says, despite that reality, we can still commit ourselves to praising God. Which is what Job has to do as well. There's something very childlike in us, or is it childish? That makes us want, if we're good boys and girls, and do what God wants, God will make everything nice for us. And let's be honest, we've all felt that. It's human to feel like that. In the reading you heard from Mark's Gospel, you hear Jesus trying to help people with this sort of dilemma. A young man, probably a young man, comes to talk to him. He treats Jesus as an important teacher. Jesus quickly says to him, don't make a fuss about me. Make God the centre of things. Don't call me the source of goodness. 
God is the source of goodness. It's very interesting, the second time the man talks to Jesus, he doesn't call him good teacher like he did the first time. He simply says, teacher, he learns that lesson. And Jesus says, why are you asking me what you need to do in order to live eternally with God? And Jesus then quotes a version of the sort of things you find in one half of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments about our behaviour towards other people. And he quotes them almost not in the same order as they come in the Ten Commandments, but he quotes them, but one of them is changed a bit, and that's really interesting. Because instead of, you shall not covet, Jesus says, you shall not cheat or defraud people. I wonder why. Well, it's very interesting that gaining wealth is what the rest of the conversation is about. This man says, to the best of my knowledge, according to the best of my conscience, I've lived in your way. I've lived in God's way. I've lived in the way pointed to by the commandments. He's a bit like Job saying, I can't see where I've gone wrong. I can't see what else I need to do. And Jesus looks at him And you always need to remember this is Jesus talking to this person about what the blockage is for this person. And you may not have the same blockage as this person did, but you'll have some blockage somewhere. So we need to think about what blockage is Jesus talking to, speaking to that we have that prevents us living wholly openly to God and thereby living eternally with God. But this man is a man who has property and possessions and wealth and that's both his strength and his blockage. And Jesus says if you want to take the next step Give up your possessions and use them to serve the poor. And come and follow me. Try living without possessions. How important are your possessions to you is the implied question. And how have you got them? Notice he said, don't defraud or cheat people. That may, don't exploit people. That might be a question about how the man has got his wealth. Who's paid the cost for this man to become wealthy? Jesus says, try turning that on its head. Try not gaining wealth, but giving it away. Give 
the wealth to the poor and you try living as if you had nothing, just dependent on God. And come and live in my way. Come and follow me. And Jesus then talks to his disciples who are scratching their heads, as always, about what on earth he's on about. And what does all this mean? And he says, how hard it is for people to live totally dependent on God, totally open to God. How hard it is for people to live in God's way. For the wealthy... For example, and it is an example, for the wealthy, the problem might be their wealth and the attachment they have to it and the importance they give to it. And Jesus uses that wonderful picture. And again, people constantly try and explain it away. So they try and say, they either make the camel smaller by saying it sometimes could refer to a rope. So it's a bit like getting a rope through a needle, sigh. <coughs> or, <coughs> or they make the gap bigger and saying it's not an eye of a needle, it's a gateway into the city both of which missed the point totally that Jesus was capable of having a sense of humour. And he's making an absurd point. This is really, really difficult, he's saying. It's like trying to get a camel or an elephant, if you like. One of the rabbis used a similar example with an elephant. It's like trying to get a camel or an elephant through a needle. But nothing's impossible for God. So with God, it can still be done. And then along comes Peter. Peter, constantly the first to speak. Normally the first to start to understand something. And usually the person who then gets it completely wrong once he started to understand it. And Peter says... Hang on a minute. We've given up being fishermen. We've given up being tax collectors. We've given up everything for the sake of God's kingdom and to follow you. So we must be all right then. And Jesus says, he partly says Peter's correct. No one who's left house, which Peter and the others have done, or brothers or sisters, family, mother or father, children, fields, agricultural economy. No one has left all those things behind for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the gospel of the coming of God's kingdom. Nobody who's done that does that worthlessly or pointlessly they're going to get a hundredfold back. They're going to get places to live. They're going to get 
relationships. One of the amazing things about churches that we often undervalue them for, in a society where natural families now are often separated by huge distances, people find grand substitute grandchildren and grandparents, substitute parents, substitute friends within the church community. Family, relationships, the way churches help each other out at times of difficulty, even possessions and food and housing, come back to us in the Christian community. And the life we have with God now takes us through death and we live with God eternally. Wonderful. But there's one slight fly in the ointment. I don't know if you noticed it as you heard it read. Jesus says, those who've given up all these things will receive a hundredfold. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers, children and fields with persecutions. In this age. In other words, there's no promise that life will be easy if you follow Jesus, if you try and do God's will and relate to God. The world and life may still be against you. But you will find that God and Christ and the Spirit are with you now and forever. And that will enable us to face the darkness and to walk into it knowing that God is there and that we are with God and God with us. Amen.